Lord's Day. Let's pray together. Living God, we approach your word with the stories that Malcolm and Carrie have told in our minds, giving thanks that we are free to ask questions, to wonder, to ponder, to doubt even. So we pray, Lord, that we will honor you as we speak and hear, and that you will transform our hearts to make us more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I am... After the Ash Wednesday service last week, I got home. And I I love Ash Wednesday. I love the sense of time shifting, of a new season beginning. I always sort of confidently keep my ashy smudge on my forehead and endure the strange looks of people on the way home. And when I got back, I checked the news. And uh, on the news, on the BBC Top Ten Stories, was the trending, what was trending around the world on the internet that evening. It turned out to be Ash Wednesday selfies, photos that people had taken of themselves with their Ash Wednesday cross, also known as Ash Tags, hilarious. (laughs) That is what they're called. And um, I was telling the congregation this morning how initially I felt this sort of encouragement, I suppose, from that. I've been thinking about those Coptic Christians who had been murdered whilst we were in church, that news had broken on Sunday, and the grief and the sorrow and the awfulness of that news. There was something about seeing all these people around the world with an ash cross on their forehead that made me feel as though somehow we were owning together our own mortality. We were not alone in that. We were saying we are fragile, frail people. There was something good about that. And there was something good, too, about thinking this obscure kind of ritual that we have in church is suddenly the biggest global thing out there. Everyone's doing it. Everyone's got an ash cross. I don't feel as weird and on the edge as I often do. But then that feeling quickly moved. I heard that people are using that ash tag to um, market products and to make money. I actually saw someone's, I can't even say it, Ash Wednesday selfie. And they'd written over the top, getting my holiness on. I can't say that with my accent. You'll have to just hear it in a cool way. Um, And I thought, this is odd, isn't it? It's odd to kind of self-promote your own holiness. It's strange if we think of the context of Jesus' words, when you pray, don't cover yourself in ashes, clean your face so no one might know what you're doing. Here are these strange juxtapositions of things a kind of willingness to enter into the desert of Lent and all that that means, the brokenness, the frailty, the humanity, and this strange bragging about it that doesn't quite fit. That, to me, is a perfect example of what Lent is. It is these things that come together when we don't expect it. Lent, Richard reminds us, is a choosing to prepare, a stepping into those 40 days in which we will sweep and clean our hearts and minds ready for Easter. A stepping in to setting aside, to turning away, to drawing towards God. It's a profoundly holy thing to do. And yet whenever I do it, and I don't know about you, I find that in the moment that I choose to do that, everything else will roar to the surface. All my mixed motives, all my agendas, all my fears and doubts and insecurities and inadequacies, all the ways in which I can't do it, will just come out. 
So I have to hold together these two things, the desire to draw close to God and my struggle to do that. What we need then is help through this journey of Lent, help that we might find in Scripture, help that we might find in these seven letters to the churches in Revelation. Because these letters invite us into a period of discernment and faithfulness. Those are the themes, really, of these letters to seven churches that form a circuit in what was Asia in the Roman Empire, kind of Asia Minor. We're coming, rather oddly, to the last letter in that circuit to a church in Laodicea. But it, like the others, is calling us in this season of Lent to faithfulness, to discernment. Revelation is not a book that I find many people are naturally drawn to. If they don't avoid it altogether, they're a little bit frightened by it. If you happen to randomly open it, you can guarantee it'll be at some beast passage that you don't understand, something totally weird or culty. And so consequently, we sometimes feel that it has nothing to say to us. But what we might find is that as we look at these letters over these next few weeks, there's something profoundly contemporary in it for us, something that can speak to our condition as human beings, something that might speak to us as we try and make this journey towards God, as we try and prepare ourselves for the joy of Easter. Today, we are invited to look at that attitude of heart that is humility, the call to humility during Lent, And I want to suggest that there are some ways of thinking about humility in this letter to the church at Laodicea that might help us as we step forward through the next 40 days that might encourage us, might guide us, might give us food for thought. And the first one is this, that humility is being known by God. Humility is being known by God. The letters to the churches in Revelation are to particular churches at particular times that they have a continuing relevance. What that means is when you read them, there are things that are very specific to those churches that we need to delve into a little bit. We need to know something of the context to understand the richness of the text. Otherwise, it's potentially just weird and a bit opaque. What we need to know about Laodicea are a number of things. This is a place which it has lots of wealth, it's very rich, but it lacks a major thing, which is its own supply of water. Laodicea has no water of its own, which means it has to import water from other places. It can import it from a city to the north, Hierapolis, which is high up on a cliff. And Hierapolis has still these hot, bubbling mineral springs where people will go for their health and for their well-being, like a spa of the Roman times. And the Romans built an aqueduct so that that hot, bubbling water could come down to Laodicea. The problem is that by the time it gets down to Laodicea, it has cooled. So it isn't the hot, bubbling water anymore. And those minerals which are good for health and well-being, they, in concentration in lukewarm water, become toxic. You can't drink that water. It's why if you go and visit, you'll see water pipes calcified with minerals all the way through. This water is no good. So you can take water from Colossae, just to the south where the Colossians are, where that letter was written. And that water is from a mountain, from a nearby mountain, pure, clean spring water, beautiful. Except when that gets all its way to Laodicea, it's heated by the Turkish sun. 
and it's lukewarm. It's not the fresh water anymore. The writer of this letter is trying to speak very deeply to the Laodiceans to say, I know you. God knows you. Notice other things about it. You should wear clothes of white. The Laodiceans have bred a sheep, a particular type of sheep that has black wool. And out of that black wool, they make luxurious, fashionable garments that everyone wants. They are kind of fashion house of the ancient Near East. And everyone wants to wear Laodicean black wool which is why wearing white garments, the sort of counter to this, is so powerful. White, the symbol of baptism, of course, but white, put on different clothes, the writer is saying. The city is also famous for its medical care. It is famous for ophthalmology, and it's where you would go if you had an eye problem. They are famous for their skill and their expertise in fixing eye problems, which is why the writer says, put on an eye salve, a different salve, so that you can see. You are so reliant on your own skill. You are not seeing. Do you see how personal this letter is? Do you see how sort of deeply it speaks into the context? See how powerful it is? If I were Laodicean, I would know exactly what God was speaking to our church as he said it. There is in this letter an invitation to be known, and to be known is humbling. To be known means that not only do we know the stuff that is good, but we also know the stuff that is frail. Here in this letter, Jesus that is saying through the letter, I know your deeds, but these deeds aren't good. These deeds aren't something that we should be a source of pride. And that's frightening to me, to be known by God, not for the things I'm doing well, but for the fullness of it. I find that to be known is something I long for, and yet something I find I retreat from. If you have come to know me, um, after quite a short period of time, if ever you've tried to make contact with me or maybe we've hung out, you will learn very fast I'm always late. I am uniformly late to things. I'm also really bad at keeping on top of email and text messages and everything like that. I find those things really difficult. These are not things with which I am comfortable. I am not at ease in these things. These are sources of shame and difficulty for me. I might laugh about them sometimes, but if I were honest, I would say these are things I don't really like about myself. I wish I were better at them. If someone then, whom I meet, makes a joke about these things early on, I want to say that I am rooted, so rooted in God, that I can laugh wryly at my own failures. Instead, what I think is, oh no, you're on to me. You know my weaknesses and my failings, and if you've glimpsed these tiny little things, what other insecurities and jealousies and inadequacies are you going to discover in me soon? I don't want you to know me. And sometimes that can cause me to retreat a little bit. I find that being known by people is similar to being known by God. I can want to hide some of the parts of me that I find less appealing, less perfect. Deep down, I want you to think that I am perfect. Deep down, I want God to think I am perfect. Of course, this is 
not the way of coming before God. And it's not the way of Lent. The way of Lent is stepping out and being exposed in our fullness. All the things that make us who we are revealed, made clearer, stronger in those wilderness places. And so then we find that we respond somehow. How are we going to be known by God? Sometimes I find in a church context, I withdraw from people so I might struggle to belong to a group, to a connect group or something, or I might not want to attend too often, lest people get to know me too well, lest I have to reveal who I really am. Or I might find that I struggle to pray. There are times where I've sat down to pray and then the thought that God might actually see something about me has stopped me praying. I just can't bear it. Or in prayer, I come to prayer, but I'm only willing to pray about these things and not the things that are of my own fragility and frailty. This is not the humility I see in the letter to the Laodiceans. To the letter of the Laodiceans, I see just a recognition, a recognition that we are known both in the good and in the bad, in the beautiful and the broken. And the important thing to notice about this is that if we don't allow ourselves to be known by others, by God, we miss out. Because what we see all the way through Scripture is that whilst being known can be frightening, can be challenging, the psalmist writes, you've searched me and you know me, where can I hide from you, where can I go from you? It's hard to be known. There's also, all the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament, a sense that to be known is to be loved. To be known is to belong to God. If you are known by God in all that you are, everything, even the things you hide, if you are known by him, you belong to him. There's a line in the text that I've always found a little bit frightening which says, I discipline and rebuke the ones I love. I am not a fan of the discipline or the rebuking. I will happily avoid those things. But actually, this is the way that God helps us to grow. To be known means that we will be corrected. To be known means that we will be guided in a better way. To be known is to belong and is to be loved. This is the humility of Lent to allow ourselves to be fully known again. The Laodiceans um, are not engaged in anything particularly sort of shocking or um, decadent or titillating. I'm sorry to tell you if that would be more exciting. More, the problem is that they're just a bit ineffective. Nothing is happening. So they are lukewarm. They are neither one thing or the other. They are spat out because they are not living out who they are meant to be. The call here seems to be humility coming through a knowledge of our own vocation. Humility is a knowledge of our own vocation. The writer is saying, you, Laodiceans, are not being who you were made to be. You were made to be people of courage. You were made to be people of strength. People who, in the midst of persecution, just as we might hear this morning through Malcolm and Carrie, are able to own their faith are able to testify to Jesus Christ, are able to live in a different way that isn't pursuing wealth or fame or glory, but is altogether different. But there's something about the Laodiceans that's kind of empty. It's kind of nothing. Some years ago, I went to visit my spiritual director, like a mentor, 
um, who was handily also a psychotherapist, and I went with a particular problem. And the problem was that for a few months, I had found that I was coming in from a meeting or from doing something with a list of things to do, an endless list of things to do. You know how it is, you think, oh, I've got half an hour, I need to just get on and do it. And I would just find myself staring into space. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. I worry when I tell you these things that no one else does these things, and I'm just <laughs> going to humiliate myself publicly. I was finding myself just staring blankly into space. And sometimes it would be for a minute or two, and sometimes it would be for an hour. Once it was for three hours, and I had no idea where that time had gone. I went to my spiritual director and I said, what is this? What am I doing? I'm wasting my life. I have that still, you know, when you go on Facebook for hours and there's just nothing is happening. It's just empty and void. And I said to him, do you think maybe I have depression? Do you think there's something really wrong? And he said, Vanessa, I think what you are experiencing is Acadia. Acadia is a sort of emptiness, a listlessness, a torpor, a nothingness, a kind of distracted emptiness. So that thing where you go to your office and you think, I must get this done, I must get this done, and then you mess around on the internet or you think about what you might have for dinner or you text a friend or you do nothing at all. That, that feeling that is empty, that feeling that is rather grim and doesn't leave you feeling full, that is Acadia. Now we might say, oh, this is a very modern malaise, isn't it? This is a problem for us because there are so many distractions around us all the time. So much social media, so many things to take us away from what we were doing. Of course, we are in a distracted age. Maybe it's a comfort to know that Acadia originates with the Desert Fathers in the second and third century. Monks in their cells would have this intention to pray. They would go to pray, and then they would get this kind of listless torpor that would come over them, this kind of nothingness, a kind of despairing emptiness, even though they desperately wanted to be effective and good prayers. They called it their noonday demon, and it was almost universal, this sense of Acadia. This is what we see in the Laodiceans, a sense of nothingness, of torpor, of not living out the vocation, of not being who they were meant to be, the feeling of being perhaps doing something entirely meaningless, the feeling of sitting at your desk and thinking, what's the point of all this? That's Acadia. That's what we're experiencing here in Laodicea. Rowan Williams said that he often experienced this as an archbishop. Again, I find that encouraging. Desert Fathers, Rowan Williams, we are in good company if we find ourselves with these moments of Acadia. Personally, it happens to me with every sermon and throughout the week at occasional moments I will experience it. Maybe you'll experience it more sporadically. Maybe it's a feature of your life too. He said it would often happen to him. He would be sitting doing something archbishopy. I don't know what that would be. And um, he would he would suddenly be struck by this feeling of utter meaninglessness. What he found the cure to be was to go deep into that moment, to acknowledge it 
and to journey into it. The Desert Fathers, when they experience Acadia, they don't then say, I will never go to a cell to pray again. They keep going back and back and back, knowing that this will strengthen and grow them. With the Laodiceans, the reason that there is so much sorrow and anger in this text is because they were called to a fullness of life. They were called to travel through this Acadia, not just rest in it, but to recover that sense of vocation. Rowan Williams said that when he found himself struck by it, struck by this malaise, he would go deep into it and remind himself of what it says in John 12, where I am, there my servant will be also. What really is happening is that we are reminded that we are called by God, called by God to the places we find ourselves, even if those places seem boring or meaningless or pointless or stressful, God is there. And in those places, however challenging we're finding them, we are called to recover our vocation. We're called to recover our vocation to be people of courage in the midst of trouble or persecution, to be people of justice, to be people who live a different way. Humility is about recovering your vocation. Humility is about growing in that knowledge of God and what he calls us to be. Finally then, The Laodiceans had everything, absolutely everything. They were rich, they were talented, they had artistic ability, they had medical ability, they were skilled. They needed nothing. And because they needed nothing, what the letter is saying is, you have nothing. You are pitiful, blind, naked. This is a source of great shame to people. Naked, pitiless, empty. The letter kind of implies that though you have everything, you have nothing, because humility, the letter is reminding us, is about radical dependence on God. It is about radically reminding ourselves that everything we need is only to be found in Jesus Christ. On Wednesday, with the start of Ash Wednesday, I gave up chocolate and crisps and cake. These are going to be a long 40 days for me. And the reason I gave them up is that a few years ago I gave up chocolate and when I was then stressed and bored, I ate cake instead. And then a few years later I gave up cake and chocolate and then when I was stressed or bored, I ate crisps instead. I look for anything which numbs and anesthetizes my pain. For me, that's in food. For you, it might be in something else. I do not want to feel. I do not want to feel discomfort. I do not want to feel disconcert disconcerted, unsure. I don't want to feel bored or stressed or sad or guilty. And so I feed those things with anything that will numb me. Often those things are chocolate-related for me. We can do that with our life more broadly too, can't we? We can numb ourselves to the pain of life with wealth if we are surrounded by money or security or with relationships if we have good, strong family relationships or marriage um, or romantic relationships, we can feel strong and good there. Or with a job that is high-powered or well-paid or well-respected or with popularity and affirmation, we can secure ourselves around with things which make us feel as though we depend on nothing but our own abilities. The call in this letter and the call of the journey of Lent is to remind ourselves of our radical dependence on God. That actually those things don't make us strong, they make us blind, pitiless, wretched, according to the letter. 
It's why it's so important that we take time, maybe particularly in this season of Lent, but really every day of our lives, to hear other voices. It's really important to hear in a church which seems to glorify marriage and the nuclear family, it's important to hear the voices of single people because single people can testify to a radical dependence on Jesus Christ for affirmation that other people sometimes get through relationships. It's important in a world which glorifies wealth to hear from people and places where there is no wealth because it can remind us of the true value of things. It's important in churches which in the West are grown by our sort of glorified by their numbers or by their merchandising, by the books and the music they put out, by their famous celebrity speakers. It's important then to hear from the churches whose walls are rubble and to go there means possible death. It's important to hear then what it means to radically depend on Jesus Christ every day of your life for mere survival. We are invited into the humility that says, I have nothing. I am pitiless, wretched, and blind. I need Jesus Christ. I need him afresh. In a moment, we will share bread and wine around this table. And it's just a reminder to hold on to that other part of the letter. As we journey into this humility, as we travel through Lent, it's hard to be known. It's hard to deal with that Acadia and that sense of vocation. It's hard to let go of what I depend on and to be radically dependent on God. But this isn't my personal holiness project. This is done in partnership with the living God. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. I will come in and eat with whoever invites me. When we share bread and wine today, we don't do it just together, but with Jesus Christ, risen, ascended, present with us today, here to give you strength for your journey of Lent here to help you discover humility, here to help you be known, to rediscover your vocation, to depend afresh on him. Amen.